Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. Um, Can we have a blowhorn for whenever I'm jargony? Because I'm going to need that. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a swear jar. (laughs) Oh, we could get one of those little restaurant ding. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I like that idea. This is Hot Buttons, a show about the future of fashion and culture on a changing planet. I'm Christina Binkley. I'm editor-at-large for Vogue Business, and I write for The Wall Street Journal and other publications. Welcome. This week, we're going to ask if we really know fashion's full impact on the environment. It's a really complicated question. We're going to spend some time in our first episode wrapping our arms around this problem. Then we're going to look at some efforts to slash textile waste. Where are the opportunities here? Then we're going to end with a conversation about Shein. Is this company an existential threat to the sustainability movement? I'm joined by my co-hosts, who will be by my side and your side every week. Rachel Kibbe is the founder of Circular Services Group, an advisory firm that focuses on circularity in fashion. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Christina. Sheila Kim Parker is the CEO and co-founder of Thrilling, a marketplace for vintage that's powered by mom and pop shops. Hey, Sheila. Hi, Christina. So we've got some stories set up for today, but before we do that, I want to just explain what this show is all about. Every week, Hot Buttons is going to feature the three of us as we dissect and debate the future of the fashion industry as it's reckoning with impact on environment and people. From time to time, we're going to bring in high-profile guests to join the action, too. The show isn't just about reducing emissions and managing supply chains, those sexy, sexy topics. It's about the culture of fashion, something we all love. And it's about high-stakes decisions inside the industry and how we're rethinking the idea of growth or degrowth or what we want to call it. We're all experts in the fashion industry, and we all want to see it change. So let's introduce ourselves a bit more. Sheila, you go first. Like, Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a born and raised New Yorker, um, and like all good New Yorkers, um, I've done most of my shopping in thrift shops. That was just shopping for me, and that's kind of where I first fell in love with fashion. Um, You know, the name of my company is Thrilling, and it's, you know, about the thrill of the hunt and that uh, joy of discovery of finding that item. You've never seen anything like it before. You've never even heard of that brand, but it feels like it was made for you. Um, And just, you know, about kind of expressing yourself in unique and authentic ways. I was never about kind of following trends or carrying the it anything. It was more about, um, you know, how can I express, um, allowing expression in authentic ways, I think, is is kind of um, been my relationship to fashion. And, um, And then there's also been, you know, negatives too. You know, I feel like half of my experiences of going into retail shops, uh, growing up have been, you know, not great and where I felt not necessarily welcome, whether it's because of, you know, my size or budget or just kind of general vibe. Um, and I'm sh- I think that that's something that probably a lot of black and brown people can relate to. A lot of women who mm-hmm. are not a size small can relate to. People of different budgets can relate to. So I, I feel like I have that perspective too on fashion. Um, professionally, very nonlinear career. Um, Started out in investment banking um, and made a lot of left turns into nonprofit arts, um, a very entrepreneurial role at Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, um, to chief of staff roles at, at Disney and ABC News, and then all along the way kind of incubating this idea for Thrilling and launched it, pregnant with my second kid, to my mother's great dismay. Not the pregnancy. <laughs> um, you don't mean the, the pregnancy. Was, oh, okay. <laughs> no, not <laughs> okay. the pregnancy. Just the, just the startup. 
Um, and, uh, you know, basically we're a mission-oriented marketplace supporting the same types of mom-and-pop shops that I grew up shopping and loving. Um, you know, helping uh, generate more revenue for them by bringing them online and reaching more shoppers around the world and helping um, popularize and make more accessible thrift and vintage shopping. Beautiful. Rachel, how about you? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, where do I start? Um, I I was, I consider myself Midwestern, I think is something I don't sort of talk about enough. I grew up mainly in Cleveland, Ohio. I was born in Connecticut. Um, so that's actually sort of part of um, the fundamentals of how I started to think about uh, what I do now. I, because I dirt biked in a junkyard. <laughs> we were Whoa. like, we, we lived way, okay. excuse yeah, me. Well, we, we, we lived <laughs> like, we didn't live in, in Darien. We lived like way out in Connecticut in like the boonies. And I had two friends, they were both little boys and we would go and we weren't supposed to, but we would dirt bike in a junkyard. And, uh, I had a lot of questions about what junkyards were. And so my mom told me about landfills. And I remember just, mm. like, asking, like, are we going to have enough room for us on this planet when we – I mean, very earnest little Whoa. kid. Um, yeah, and I was worried. But then we moved to Ohio, into the suburbs, and didn't really cross my mind. I was really interested in writing and ended up studying creative writing for undergrad and uh, moving to Spain for another year, a couple years, where I um, covered Madrid Fashion Week and got interested in fashion. My mother was an artist, and I was always interested in clothes, and we always shopped together, and those were our, like, best times together, strangely. Um, maybe not strangely. Maybe a lot of women feel that way. So in writing about fashion, I became, I thought I was good. And then Project Runway. I mean, of course, I mm. thought I'm going to move to New York City and I'm going to, right? Oh, yeah. We all thought we were designers when we watched <laughs> Tim Gunn. Be best friends with Tim that Gunn. That show changed yeah, an entire exactly. generation's <laughs> career outlook. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Serious. Go. Anyway, sorry. Well, yeah. So then I went to Parsons uh, later in life, actually. It was my second degree and studied fashion design. And I did not like fashion design. <laughs> and I did not like, I did a number of uh, internships in the industry where I got really disappointed in sort of what I saw as sort of a boat that was sinking um, uh, around the amount we were producing and the way we were treating mm. pr like the labor pool who made our things. Mm. I think it's a, a formative experience mm -hmm. to sew a pair of pants. It's it really is, yeah. and to understand how much labor goes into that, yeah. and I just thought these cannot cost ten dollars, and the wheels of the bus fell off for me. Right. And so, yeah. out of Parsons, I ended up getting a full time job, and at the same time, running one of the first online, not in the fashion industry, in banking, basically as a secretary at a large investment bank, and I ran um, one of the first <laughs> ethical fashion e commerce platforms. For six years, probably much to the dismay of my wow. bosses uh, while I was working at that job <laughs> at the same time. Um, I, I remember them calling me into their office once and they were like, you have to have a lot of employees. You're getting all this press. And I was like, no, I don't. Because they're like, you know, you're going to have to tell. <laughs> you're going <laughs> to... So it was basically a side hustle. It was totally Incredible. a side hustle. Wow. It's 100% a side hustle. But I got more interested in waste because I had a lot of customers asking what they could do with their clothes at end of life. And so I ended up fast forward to merging that company with um, a brand new sort of 
large-scale waste collection, textile waste collection company, and was with them for a number of years and learned a lot about where our clothes go and what the reverse supply chain looks like. And like, you know, spoiler alert, it's a tough business and it takes a lot of resources to get clothes out of people's closets and back into uh, another person's hands at scale on the municipal level. Um, so I have had sort of that like waste baptism uh, through that experience. And now I consult mm-hmm. retailers, NGOs, um, and a lot of other folks on various parts of sort of the reverse supply chain and sustainability. Um, and I have recently founded uh, the American Circular Textiles Policy Group, ACT, uh, and we are working on policy solutions around textile waste. We're going to need a lot of sessions on your internships. Oh, the internships, also. man. <sighs> yeah. Also, waste baptism, garbage baptism. What did know. you say? What did I say? <laughs> <laughs> baptism by garbage. Baptism or by like waste. That. Municipal waste management. Hey, you know, I think mm-hmm. this is gold. Sexy Marketing sausage. gold. These are the. This is going to be our merch. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are both. just credit me. Oh, uh, Christina. What? Tell us about yourself. I'm an accident. Everything about my career is an accident. Um, I've been a journalist for 30 years. I've covered a lot of industries. I spent 10 years covering the casino industry, wrote a book about that, briefly covered the toy business. I covered real estate scams in Florida early in my career. I was even, um, I got my first full-time job in journalism at the Wilkes-Barre Times Leader in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. So that was in the dark ages. But um, I literally never (laughs) planned on writing about fashion. It just, it was an an editor at the Wall Street Journal came to me um, and asked me to take it on. And I was like, I don't know anything about fashion. Um, And so here I am, (laughs) a little more than 15 years later, I know a lot about fashion. Um, It was a total accident. And I literally, my first New York Fashion Week, I... (laughs) I didn't even know how to get into it out of the fashion shows. It was it was like I just I look back at that. It's like Did you go in through the back? What are these people doing? And why do they all know each other? <laughs> right. And it feels like there's some social protocol. There is. There is. It totally is. Oh my God. Jesus. So many so it's like I'm so glad. Yep. It's, yeah. <laughs> oh man. Um Anyway, since I mean, I you know, it's been a it's been a really good ride, and I'm I I laugh about it because it's it wasn't planned, but it's been um it's been a fascinating fifteen or so years. Um, I always laugh. I mean, I've had like there's the highs and the lows. I, one of my favorite experiences was interviewing Carl Lagerfeld standing in the rain. Um, he had just done a photography wow. exhibit um, and published a photography book, and he and somehow it was associated with Fendi. I, I guess maybe they funded it. Anyway, we're standing in the rain by the Seine River in Paris, and he has to have his butler fully liveried <laughs> with a silver platter and his diet. I can't remember if it was Pepsi or Coke. Um, with him, like, standing wow. there. It was the weirdest, but, but wonderful. Um, like. At- I'm sorry. His butler delivered him a no, like, just the a diet, diet Pepsi Coke or Coke. I can't remember he was with ice in his glass on a on, on yeah, a, platter. a silver metal platter. Stood there like it was normal. Yes. Did you somebody, have umbrellas? Somebody was holding were, umbrellas were, for us. This is like a romantic. <laughs> this is a rom com. <laughs> <laughs> It was like, and he didn't want anybody else around us except then. He made he made a point actually to tell me that he paid the butler himself. That neither Chanel nor Fendi, for whom he des- both designed both brands, were paying for it because he wanted the guy to keep his secrets, and he didn't want him, them yeah. him to be employed by somebody else. Smart man. <laughs> okay, let's just dive into the show here. We got an action-packed show coming. For our first topic, we're asking a simple question. 
what is fashion's actual impact on the environment? Which means, can we measure it? We're talking data here. We hear a lot of sweeping stats in this industry. Um, Some of my favorites are fashion accounts for 10% of global emissions. It creates 20% of global wastewater. Um, The one we've all used a million times for reasons we probably can't even explain is that fashion is the second biggest polluter after the oil industry. We know the environmental impact of fashion is vast. That's why we have a whole podcast devoted to the subject. We can see the growing waste problem of ultra-fast fashion in photos and documentaries, but I wonder if it's been properly quantified. In fact, it turns out, nope, it has not. There have been a couple excellent pieces from Alden Wicker at Vox and Vanessa Friedman at the New York Times about a misinformation problem in sustainable fashion. And they're both pointing to a trend that's kind of alarming considering how many times we use all these statistics, the same ones over and over. Almost everybody in the fashion industry uses these things. The advocates, the consultancies, even the United Nations, it turns out, are relying on data that's been repackaged and is totally unverified when you start to dig into where it originated, particularly that second biggest polluter after the oil industry statistics. So let's spend some time wrapping our arms around the industry's impact. Rachel, you had a strong reaction to a story that was published in the New York Times this week about the HIG index. I don't know if everybody knows what the HIG index is. Could you tell us a little bit about it and what's the controversy? So I I guess the reason, I, I guess my reaction wasn't so strong. I was just, it's, been a long time coming that um, the news that broke around sort of the Hague Index became so public in in such a national way in the New York Times. Um, So the the Hague Index is a suite of technology tools used widely by the fashion industry. It is our most um, sophisticated set of tools really to measure environmental impact easily around textiles and other materials that you use in Hmm. Clothing, footwear, uh, accessories, um, and it leverages data from their non-partner, their nonprofit partner, the Sustainable Apparel Coalition. The Sustainable Apparel Coalition is a nonprofit alliance for the fashion industry, which includes 250 of the leading fashion organizations, NGOs, um, trade associations, like any. Everybody is in it who, um, I mean, most major players who have any sort of relation to especially the upstream production part of fashion um, are involved in the Sustainable Apparel Coalition. And, And the issue that has been that the New York Times article talked about is that there has been a lot of criticism around the data that the Sustainable Apparel Coalition provides the HIG index. This has been happening for many years. It's not news, but it's been very hushed and it's very political because the people who uh, are involved in the fashion industry who sort of most intimately know about the problems, they also rely on this tool. And um, without a better more easy-to-use tool, what do you do? Can I I just ask you a question? I'll make sure I understand it. Um, So the Hig Index, does that mean that I can take this T-shirt and this leather jacket and apply a number to it that says that the T-shirt has less of an impact on the globe than the leather jacket? Yeah, I think that's a way to look at it. Um, Unfortunately, because I am not uh, employed by a fashion brand. The tool is, I've been told, relatively expensive. I've never even been able to look at it. So I don't know if it could go oh. to the individual unit or if it only looks at sort of volumes and skews or if it looks at material inputs. I, I'm not certain. But I know that it can measure for brands and that they use these measurement tools for sustainability reporting. So 
critics of the system point out that some data funded by the synthetics, which is the plastics industry, um, is too is either inaccurate or um, and other data perhaps is too narrow in scope. It also does not include production volume. So it's truly sort of just the impact of these materials uh, and fabrics rather than quantity. Um, and it doesn't include microplastics or other sort of ancillary Ooh. consequences of these materials. So this has been happening for a long time. And so I've been sort of watching it. And I know people intimately involved in sort of advocating for better data. The The main takeaway from this article, though, all this said, is that they are promoting the use of polyester over natural materials. So polyester gets a better environmental score in the Higg Index over cotton, wool, you know, natural fibers like silk, leather. Wow. That and seems so crazy. Yeah. It's, cra- it's crazy, and it's actually sad, I think, because it's, like, impacted the alpaca industry. It's impacted the silk industry. Um, and when you look at the statistics since 2000, polyester production has tripled. Mm-hmm. So, and why this has been so politically consequential and sort of sticky up until, and continues to be sticky, more sticky, is that a lot of mm-hmm. the major brands benefit, like specifically fast fashion, benefit from polyester being weighed accordingly because it's so cheap, namely, namely fast fashion brands, right? And a lot of these fast fashion brands are members of the Sustainable Coalition and on the board of the Higa Index. So there's some conflicts of interest there, right? And um, uh, um, it, and another issue is it's set to become, as the New York Times points out, a de facto measurement tool in policy in the EU right. and in the U.S. Um, which means which means that the you know I mean that's great if the data is good because then the tool is strong. But if the data is weak. If it's not based on yeah. good inputs, then that's scary. It's scary, and it's 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 um, you know I, I'm not a I'm not a data scientist. Obviously, I, those who are specifically Veronica Bates Cassidy, who was quoted in this article, has been drumming like beating the drum on this issue largely over LinkedIn. A lot of this this sort of um, Whistleblowing is happening over LinkedIn in in real time. <laughs> um, it's like how politicians are using Twitter. Our industry is sort of using LinkedIn, and she's been pointing out the exact sort of weak points of the Higg Index for a long time. Um, and um, Jason Kibbe, the CEO, he happens to have the same last name as me. No relation. <laughs> no relation. Spelled yeah. differently. <laughs> yeah. He responded <laughs> today. You know, I think they're all sort of in agreement. He said, you know, there's not enough data. There's not good data. We all need to get get together. Um, there's there's a learning moment here and an opportunity to do what they all want, which, mm-hmm. which is get better data. Well, and of course, that, that was my takeaway from reading that article is that some of the things, I mean, they, they, they pointed out that the study that was used to measure the impact of silk was based on a very small sample of silk being produced during a particular season in a particular part of the world that's not indicative of the entire world. And when you look at that, I'm not a data scientist either, but anybody would look at that and say, oh, well, okay, go get more samples. Look at bigger parts of the world. Like, that seems really doable. I will say, I I haven't talked to Jason Kibbe in years, but I remember he and you were starting out in the fashion industry, Rachel, I think at about the same time. The exact same time. He came to my office at the Wall Street Journal bureau, one of three bureaus ago in Los Angeles, with his then business partner. They'd 
just graduated. I think it was from Stanford. Probably uh, MBAs. I don't remember what degrees they were getting, but their prototype, their their sort of their um, their case study turned into their first company, which was packed. It was an it was supposed to be a sustainable underwear um, company. Pact still exists, but it's owned by somebody else now. And um, and I remember they were they brought me the first attempt that I'd ever seen of replacing the plastic bags that that clothing is delivered in with something that was biodegradable. I actually took their bag and buried it in my garden to see if it would actually biodegrade, and they were scared and it did wouldn't. It? <laughs> did it? It did. It, well, I mean, I never found it, and I went out there digging, so I <laughs> presumed that, <laughs> that was, So I know wherever he's gone, and he's obviously super protective of the Hig Index now, which has been his baby for at least 10 years, but I know he comes well-grounded with, yeah. you know, with, you know, meaning well. But, you know, it's a great, I think it was a great example of you just constantly have to be innovative and finding yourself yeah. wrong and improving. It's so interesting because it definitely is something that is really specific and particular to fashion climate, which is this haziness around data and obviously a huge area of improvement and hugely important to kind of the work and, and the mission of what we're trying to do. Uh, and, and I know that, you know, we've all read um, Alden Wicker and Vanessa Friedman's pieces about kind of the misinformation that circulates, that surrounds kind of some of the fashion and climate data and science that there's been and, and some of the, the most commonly cited facts um, that we've all used and heard and repeated, you know, uh, when you dig into it, they did such a great job of, fi- of finding out that, you know, that Spider-Man meme where they're just pointing at each other. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's that's what it felt like, right? <laughs> where you're saying, you know, you have these name brand institutions like the United Nations and the World Bank and McKinsey yeah. using these stats. And, and when you dig into it, they're like, oh, we got it from you. No, I can't get that from you. You didn't get that? Yeah. That was great. That was great. That was like a Keystone Cops moment in Vanessa's Yes, exactly. Colony. I thought you said that. <laughs> yeah, I don't, did you say that? And it's so funny because it's like... And that's to- oh, like, how many times have you guys heard that? That That's the... Uh, that that particular one was second the second most polluting most... industry in the world. I have to say, like, it, it served us well, though. It's been a so such a great PR like snippet to have bad data, and I think we're <laughs> going to get to that Fair bad enough. data. Um, <laughs> it's just been really, it's really gotten my yeah, career right. off the ground. The ends but, justify the okay. means, right? But then, yes. what do you yeah. do? Like, what do you do if you the know data what? is wrong? It's so funny because it feels like so much of the, the data feels like truthiness, you know, that Stephen yeah. Colbert concept, yeah. where it just, it feels right. Feels right. It has good mouthfeel. It feels truthy. I think that's right. <laughs> and, it, and, it support, and it supports my words you. So, you know, I can't, but I, you know, change I, now. I do oh. feel like, I mean, I, I know we're all in agreement here that obviously getting the, the numbers correct is so important in building trust with the consumers and actually, um, you know, accountability and legislation. You really need to know how bad is the problem and wh- are these measures actually appropriate and effective to combating the issues? Um, I think Alden Wicker said, garbage in, garbage out. If we have garbage, and kind of what you are saying yeah. before, Christina, garbage data in, garbage policies out. So true. So we have concluded that we need boatloads of more good data. We know that we need yeah. 100% better data. <laughs> the only <laughs> God, it's so frustrating data. that we can hang our hat on. We have so much data out there on so many things. I mean, you imagine the way I mean, we dial down to the greatest level of, finest level of detail in Facebook. And I mean, these, these companies know so much about our individual lives. 
and how we are consuming things, and yet we have so little data on the rest of these supply chains. It's so interesting. You know, I looked at um, the tobacco industry and, you know, how important was the science and data in combating tobacco Mm. and cigarette use and activating consumers and and getting appropriate legislation passed. And it was so interesting because um, there is this book called Merchants of Doubt by these two historians, Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway. And um, they they document how meaningful action actually did come to pass, but it could have been, it could have come to pass actually decades earlier, but corporate tobacco used doubt and sowing haziness over the science as an actual corporate strategy um, to prevent any meaningful action Mm -hmm. taking place. And they have this excerpt from a memo that was written in 1969 from a tobacco company. Um, In it, tobacco executives wrote, doubt is our product since it is the best means of competing with the body of fact that exists in the mind of the general public, 1969. And so what we, I think what one of the things, right? And so one of the things I feel like we have to do is make sure that this haziness around the facts isn't weaponized against us and as a means Mm. of stalling actually meaningful work. It already has. And I think that's why it's so meaningful this article came out this week. And I think it's really meaningful that, and I said this before we got on, that probably was the most shared article with me from people inside and outside of the industry in a, in a long time. So fascinating. A lot of people, right? Yeah. It struck a chord. It struck yeah. a chord. Is it worth going over what we do know in terms of stats? Okay, we know we know that there are tens of billions of 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 items of clothing produced every year. We know that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, exact figure of of which which level of tens is is in debate, but it's tens of billions yep. on that scale. Fair. We know what we know what those clothes are made out of. We know the processes in which they're made, and we're no, we know what they're made out of, right? Um, so there, we can track natural resource to some level, natural resource consumption and carbon emission. Mm-hmm. We know that. Um, at least in the hundreds of millions of items are showing up um, on the shores of countries in the global south that are discarded waste from the global north. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- they're choking those communities there every single week. Th- that's what we know. And is is that, do you, Rachel, do you feel like, is, does that accurately portray what we know? Or is there more specificity or, or, or a, a different way of kind of framing it, you think? I think that's a beautiful narrative illustration of exactly what we know. I think you're absolutely right. And, but I think that is not data. And so that sort of serves the same purpose as uh, fashion is the most, the second most polluting industry. I think we've gotten there, but as an industry, as we're looking at our businesses, as I'm advising companies on their sustainability strategy, um, without accurate tools of measurement, that's where it gets really tough. And that's where you get into greenwashing territory. And that's where you can't fulfill your promises. I think we should turn to our next story now. We want to talk about textile waste. It's the most visible problem in the fashion industry. We've seen the piles and piles of clothing in landfills around America and around the world. We're throwing out clothing in higher volumes every year. And as producers pump out more garments than ever before, waste is climbing in manufacturing. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has charted the amount of clothing that we landfill in America alone. We went from 1.7 million tons in 1960 to more than 11 million tons in 2018, and that was before the pandemic caused us to empty our closets and start fresh. 
A nonprofit arm of the New York Sanitation Department estimates that New York City's yearly textile waste could reach as high as the Empire State Building. My two co-hosts are involved in an effort to bring more transparency and regulatory scrutiny to the textiles industry. So let's dig into the policy solutions for textile waste. Rachel, you've been working on the American Circular Textiles Group for a while now, and I want to sort of get a sense of what you're, you're working with Shilla on this and some other cool people. Um, what are you, what's the nut you're trying to solve here, and how do you think you can get to it with this group? We are trying to solve the most impossible nerdy part of uh, what Shill and I devote our careers to, like absolutely. And it's also the the talking point that uh, in the fashion industry, it's gone from we need more sustainability to we need more transparency to now everybody just leans up, well, we need more policy. Well, we're doing it. Um, leave it to the like nerd heroes to sort of tackle this. Yay, so, nerd so, heroes. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. New T-shirts yes. for us, guys. We, Policy <laughs> to do what? Policy to t- get the, keep the clothes out of the landfills? Yes. Um, supportive policy to help the businesses who are currently keeping clothes out of landfills. Because a lot of... Okay. So I'll, I'll frame it up. The, the a- ACT is the American Circular Textiles Policy working group. It's a partnership between mm-hmm. my firm, Circular Services Group, and a, a great firm called Resource Recycling Systems, RRS. Um, it came together after the Fashion Act. Uh, I worked with a senior consultant, Marissa Adler, um, on a paper um, suggesting modifications to the Fashion Act, which was a bill um, that In was... New York. In New York, uh, one of the first of its kind, it was mainly a disclosure bill around supply chain impacts in the fashion industry. And we wanted some amendments in there, um, primarily around uh, including reuse as a way to, to decouple sort of the impact of fashion production um, from a carbon perspective, specifically. Um, so, so we we didn't get our wish, but what we did get is we had a really great paper, like we a really great letter that we wrote. Um, that um, we had a lot of great signatories on the letter that we were able to have one on one conversations with, um, including a lot of publicly traded resale platforms and rental platforms and um, all sorts of stakeholders who individually told us that no matter what happened with as a response to our paper, whether we got our sort of wishes into the bill or not, they need a space to talk Mm. about some of the things that are challenging their businesses that could only be supported by policy. And this is something I didn't want to get into until about 10 years later in my career. I've always known (laughs) it was going to happen. It was not going to be now. Um, So Marissa and I found ourselves, well, okay, we both have uh, day jobs and uh, we're really busy, but uh, the time is now. So, and you're talking uh, some big names in the industry. I think you mentioned ThreadUp, the Real uh, Real, Real Rent Real the Runway, Castle Trove. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, Eleven okay. founding member organizations. I think um, from what you've described, it actually sounds like a very unusual group of people. Shell has mentioned that you should actually be competitors, but there you all are sitting around a room. I guess trying valiantly to not to share your inner secrets of your business strategies. And is it a pretty collaborative group, would you say? It's so collaborative, and everyone is open to having 
really tough discussions. And we're, we are operating under antitrust agreements, so we can't get so You can't collaborate on prices. No collusion. <laughs> no collusion. Oh, really? No. Oh, Shucks. shoot. Sorry, <laughs> Shilla. Now we tell Shilla. That was the primary appeal. <laughs> Shilla, I didn't have you sign that. Damn it. <laughs> Don't roll this back in court. Okay, no um, collusion. What, what's your, what's you going to do? Like, what's your goal? My large-scale goal, my goal in life is to curb textile waste. I don't know why. All those it landfills. just has become my passion. Um, mm. And so there, I view my whole career over the past five years, but really everything leading up to it has been this tentacle of various different strategies that I see as parts of this sort of circularity puzzle. And I've sort of worked in them all, strangely. Um, and now it's gotten to policy. And I think we need policy to tackle the... And textile waste sounds like so... I think... It just, it, textile waste isn't just textile waste. It's all the resources that went into making clothes. So it's really just climate. Like, my yeah. goal is to curb climate change. Like, that would be a better answer to stop climate change. I think you're so right about policy, too. I mean, honestly, we're kind of, like, we, if, we can't just make it all with individual choices. Right, yeah. exactly. And I, I think the scale of the problem is such that it requires a policy response. So you have mm-hmm. tens of billions, at the most conservative estimate, 85 billion um, items of new clothing made every year. We know that somewhere between two-thirds to 80% of that clothing is ending up in landfills. And so um, how do we um, effectively stop that program? And honestly, even with all the resale uh, partners all combined, we're still not scratching the dent. Mm-mm. We're not making a dent in terms of the amount of clothing that's actually produced and thrown out every single year. Um and so that's that's kind of the scale of the problem we're talking about. And and Rachel, you know, I've I've heard you talk really passionately about this. Our recycling and and reuse infrastructure in the U.S. is has le- leaves a lot to be desired. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no federal recycling infrastructure. You know, basically, you have um, Renee Cho wrote this great piece for Columbia Climate School about this. You have twenty thousand communities across the U.S. making individual decisions about what whether to recycle and what to recycle. Where yeah. we don't have great technology in terms of extracting and sorting and recycling items. That's that's from plastic and paper to textile. Right. Um, and then incorporating um, those materials into new products and then creating demands for those products. So I think, um, you know, there's the the scale Amen. of the problem is large. Right? Yeah, seriously. The scale of the problem is large, and it, and it, and it requires this type of collaborative action um, in order to really get something done. So, you guys, I spent um, part of this morning preparing for this next segment that we want to talk about, Sheehan, actually on Sheehan's website, and I thought for a minute that I would even, like, try to buy some clothes on there because I'm very— I was just going to ask. Well, I didn't do yeah. it, but I will. <laughs> you know, because one of the things you can't tell from a website yeah. is what is the quality of the clothing. But I really—and so, mm. maybe you guys know. Let's secret. talk about this. What? Uh-oh. You bought— You shop on Shein? I shirt. You're wearing No, I Shein. got it at Buffalo Exchange. I got it—and it was a ah. whole thing. Okay. Like, I was like, is it okay if it's used? Right, right. That's a whole, that's, we have to have a full well, hour. At least it's better if it's used, right? <laughs> Listen, okay, I'm going to go back, back yeah. up for a second though. Okay, so. Um, okay, all right. In April, which is the day that the UN dropped its latest climate report, um, talking about those really scary changes to the planet that nobody's paying enough attention to, Sheehan actually announced, there was a story in the Wall Street Journal, they announced that they had raised over a billion dollars, which makes them worth more than $100 billion. This is a Chinese 
store, uh, you know, retailer that most people in the world probably hadn't heard of until a year or so ago. That is an, it's a crazy amount of money, the value. I mean, we're talking, um, you know, what it's one of the most, one of the top two or three most valuable privately held companies in the world. Um, and it's built off this ultra fast fashion model that pumps out thousands of new styles every week. You're talking $8 shorts, $11 dresses. These are really inexpensive clothes. And it raises a lot of environmental criticisms. It raises bigger questions about the whole consumer mindset. We hear people talking about how they want to support better labor practices. I don't know what kind of labor practice you can get for an $8 pair of shorts. Um, Younger consumers, they do <laughs> say much. that they're, they care about the environment and workers' rights and buying clothes. Right. Um, but I do think that Sheehan's popularity is maybe testing millennials and Gen Z's dedication to these things because they're certainly buying a lot of those clothes. Um, as a matter of fact, it's, the company appears to be dominating the clothing market among a lot of younger consumers. Um, in, mm-hmm. in spite of what we know about the massive environmental footprint, worker mistreatment, I mean, you don't, the, the wages that you get paid to produce these clothes can't be much. Um, and then there's a whole other issue of design theft and copying things. So let's talk about this. Shula, I wanted to throw this to you first. I know you've really looked at this model. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what is Sheehan's business model? Yeah. Okay. So, so... Originally founded in 2008, their original name was She Inside, mm. which I couldn't get over because She in it. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was, I think that was a smart move. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. To, yeah. To update their name. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, um, Christina, you laid it out. They're, they're a private company, so there's not that much publicly available information about them. But what we do know is that, um, you know, it's, uh, as you said, a fashion retailer, fast fashion retailer. They they are based in China, um, but they have 10,000 employees all around the world, including Singapore and the U.S. Um, their main suppliers are, are in this uh, city called Guangzhou, um, near um, about 80 miles um, northwest of Hong Kong. Um, you you noted kind of their, their insane scale. Mm-hmm. So they're about to do, Morgan Stanley says they're going to do $20 billion in sales this year. <laughs> Up, up from $10 billion last year. Oh now, $20 billion at an average price point of $7, that's $2.5 billion items sold. That is so many things sold. Mm. Oh. Um, if you add up, if you add up every smartphone maker in the world, including Apple and Samsung and a bunch of others, that doesn't even come close to that number of items. So it's just just to give you the sense of scale of how much they're they're churning out. As you mentioned, a billion dollars at a hundred billion dollar valuation um, from investors like General Atlantic, Sequoia China, Tiger Global Management. Um, highest private valuation, except I mean, by far more than Zara mm, and H&M yeah. combined. But but um, the the only other two private companies that have a higher valuation are are SpaceX and and ByteDance, the owner of TikTok. Um, so this is a massive valuation, more app downloads in the U.S. than Amazon. Um, and what they've really done is, um, you know, they, they, they've perfected the Zara model, but put it on crack. So Zara, wow. you know, famously pioneered, they, they shortened the product development cycle. Um, you used to take months to get from concept to production. Um, Zara shortened it to weeks. Yeah. Shein has shortened it to days. Um, so essentially what they do is, um, they are very proud of their proprietary technology. Um, 
that that will detect emerging trends. They'll send um, a, a, a concept out to an outsourced designer and production shop. Everything is outsourced to small shops. They do small batch production. And if um, there is demand for that particular design, they quickly scale up production. And if there isn't, they quickly shut it down. Um, now, this allows them to pump out about 6,000 new styles every single day, um, just to give you a sense of what that number means. So in a year, Gap will list about 12,000 different items on its site, H&M about 25,000, Zara about 35,000. In a year, Shein in that period would do about 1.3 million styles. Um, This is... So th- this is this is the type of scale um, that we're talking about, and a huge credit to Vahini Vara, who wrote this incredible piece in Wired, and actually got executives interviews with executives, which I had never seen before. Um, and so a lot of this information comes mm-hmm. from her fantastic piece. So yeah, that is that's essentially their model. The other really unusual thing about their model is that they are shipping direct to consumer from China, but they don't sell in um, China, right? And- they don't sell in China, and they sell direct to consumer to 150 companies. And that's really interesting because they're putting smaller packages on a plane from um, Guangzhou to your doorstep, Christina. And, and, and that allows them, through various intricacies of international tariffs and et cetera, to, redu- to, to basically um, escape a lot of tax liabilities that other folks, um, other folks encounter. And that's part oh. of the reason why they're achieving these low prices. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, I was Christina? just wondering what that means for tariffs. Italic does that. Because if they're shipping direct to consumer, yeah. do they not have to pay the tariffs that you would if you— Yeah, so that's been— th- that's been a part of their model, and now I know the U.S. is considering because of um, Shein and, and some of these um, loopholes that they are taking advantage of. They're considering kind of reexamining um, the tariffs that they um, charge for for smaller dollar um, shipments. But um, and then obviously, you know, a, a Swiss watchdog group called Public Eye um, went and scoped out some of their um, factories and warehouses and found that folks were working fourteen hour days, seven days a week, with one day off a month. Um, there's a nonprofit advocacy group um, called Remake um, that scores different organizations based on their kind of labor and environmental practices and gave Sheehan a, a score of ze- zero out of 150 points. Zero? <laughs> they couldn't even um, get one point? Their- <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they, they just hot- down from like three to Not zero. And yet they've been getting yeah, some good press lately. They ha- they hired um, an, an yeah. ESG guy. Should we define what ESG is? Rachel, what is ESG? Yeah, it's a way of, it's, it's, environmental and social governance. It's a way to measure risk around environment and social governance uh, within companies. And Wall Street is starting to use it. They're looking at companies and saying, "What's your? what are your ESG goals and have you accomplished them, right? Like it's yeah. actually getting There's built into to company valuations on Wall Street. So it's, it's important to a lot of There's companies. There's a lot of controversy. Yeah. Sheehan's private, so they don't have to worry about Wall Street, but they, um, they have hired... Uh, a, uh, a head of ESG who came from, where did he come from? Disney? Yeah. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. They also made a pledge recently to spend a whole lot of money toward um, sustainability, which was immediately smacked down as not enough money. But um, they have been getting better press for some reason. Do they deserve it? I think there's two separate questions. I think, I for instance, so they, they have... Uh, they committed $50 million to a sustainability fund, I believe, or a circularity fund announced recently at the Global Fashion Summit, which was held last week. It was big news. The biggest news actually was uh, in in that announcement is $15 million over the next three years is going to go to the OR Foundation. 
uh, which 15, is fifteen one five one five yeah over okay. three a three year period, um, which is I, I know the directors of that foundation Liz Ricketts and her partner Branson, um, they do boots on the ground work in Ghana uh, Accra, which basically is sort of where all of our clothes eventually end up. Not all of them, but a lot mm. of the textile waste that even the rag and sorting industry doesn't want sort of gets purchased by um, the the industry there that uh, there's a huge industry built around sorting and selling used clothing and um, but they don't have waste management structure infrastructure and so this clothing often clogs gutters uh, winds up in the ocean in the waterways there uh, that when there's flooding the streets are filled with clothes it's an environmental and safety hazard it is um, wow. and it's increasing because it's because of fast fashion. And so uh, a lot of Liz's sort of work has been to try to get the fashion industry to pay their dues owed to them to support um, um, the infrastructure there and the people working there. Um, And Shein is the first major company to commit actual dollars. I don't know if they deserve credit, but uh, uh, I think the Orr Foundation deserves the money. Yeah, it just seems like so little money compared... I mean, the, I mean, the numbers that Shilla was just laying out. It's missing a few zeros. <laughs> right? Yeah, I think we're all missing a few zeros. It's a fraction of, 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 of 1%. That's probably yeah, so much think, less than I the CEO earns. We're all missing a few oh. zeros. Right, right. I, I, think it's, I think it's great that they're doing that, and I, I think the OR Foundation are great stewards of it, and I know they're putting it to great use, but it is missing a few zeros. And ultimately, I think we're, you know— um, I'm glad they're paying attention to the end end of their clothing's life. But what about the beginning of the clothing's life when they're overproducing um, and, and and making these insane quantities and contributing to the problem at the front end? So I think unless they actually pay attention to the front end of the problem, um, it's hard to take them seriously. Here's the thing, though. They claim that they produce less waste up front than most fashion manufacturers. I mean, they and you know they claim there. We don't see audits of this. Okay, but that's they such... say their sell through rate is ninety eight percent, which is hard. A sell through rate means that's the way companies, that's the way retailers measure what they've sold at full price without discounting. Right. By the way, if you go on Shein's website, everything is discounted. You get yeah. you get pop-ups flashing 70% off, 40% yeah. off, 20% off. Sign up now, you get 10%. Yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, pay you to take it. I, yeah. I think that <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> you feel like you're in a casino or something. Yeah. I know. Yeah. It's, I, I don't, I think, I actually, I, I uh, suspect they probably are extremely efficient in terms of getting those sell-through rates with their heavy discounting and their, um, you know, very aggressive with managing their supply mm-hmm. chain. I think the problem is the quantity that they're producing and that the cycle of consumption that they're incurring. Yeah. So is that volume something that's sustainable for planet and people? Clearly not. Probably not. It's like saying you should go on a diet by giving yourself a larger plate. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Rachel. I love that diet. Okay. Goals for the week. I never thought of that. <laughs> Try it. It looks Report so much back. smaller now that my plate is so big. Yeah. <laughs> That's like the Homer Simpson diet <laughs> manual. Oh, my God. Oh, um, my God. I, and then 
Obviously, you know, you know, Christina, you touched on this. They 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 have all sorts of other issues: racist, a swastika necklace that they oh, made, yeah. uh, prayer prayer mats Forgot that they sold as decorative Oof. rugs, um, children's clothing that were found to have dangerously high levels of lead in them, copying indie designers' work. Um, these are all well documented. Yeah. Um, so certainly, um, certainly, lots of problematic um, policies and and practices within the group. So they claim, you know, they must be hearing something because they have committed this $15 million and they did hire Adam Winston from, um, from Disney to be their head of ESG. So they're taking some steps. Like, if you guys had a chance to put three goals in front of them, what would they be? Make less clothing. Okay. Make less clothing. Yeah. Make less clothing. Yes. I think that's okay. it. Okay. Make less, make less, make less. Yeah. Make better. I, I, here's the problem. So, I mean... With that whole ninety-eight percent sell-through rate and other, there they they Adam said that uh, the industry would do well to sort of follow their model. I mean, ex- returns and excess inventory and that's that whole sort of piece of the pie is a huge issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, in in fashion, um, the excess inventory uh, problem. Perhaps the industry could learn from their efficiencies, but like that's not. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the amount of clothing that they produce net-net. Um, mm-hmm. And that's sort of a divergence tactic. And I think that's yes. what goes back to what you were saying, Sheila, about hazy data. Mm-hmm. It's it's confusion. It's gaslighting yeah. in a way. Even their return rate. Yes. I don't know how you return think- something that was direct mailed to you from Guangzhou. <laughs> right. like. Seriously. And you paid and, $7 and I, for it, so why bother? And if you only paid $7 yeah. for it, are you really going to go to the post office? You well, he also say, said, because yeah, I was it. at the Sourcing Journal conference where he held his first public interview. I was there. Yeah. And he cited that their return rates were lower than most companies. But they don't allow returns in a lot of their territories. <laughs> they will pay you back and you keep it. Oh. So <laughs> just a, a little footnote. Little. Um, I do think that I do think they will distract us from with um, you know some of the things they will clearly make investments on the waste management side, and I, I think that's good. Um, and they are putting out a new sustainability and social impact report, and it's focusing a lot on their suppliers who and 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 they they have um, outlined some <laughs> some failures on their supply side, uh, like Rachel mentioned, eighty three percent operating with major risks, twelve percent of suppliers had committed zero tolerance violations, which include underage labor. Um, But, you know, I do think those are ultimately distractions because suppliers, they can crack down on their suppliers all they want. But again, as as, um, Rachel was saying... The problem starts at the beginning, which is the um, the amount of clothing that you're producing to start with. Um, and so, um, really, if you're not tackling and and I'll you know even quote Liz Ricketts' um, own words, the head of the OR Foundation, um, when I asked her, you know, if she could wave a wand and change anything about uh, global production, um, what would she do? And she said, I would reduce it seventy percent today. Seventy percent, um, and I, and I yeah. think you know, for it. most seventy mm-hmm. percent, yeah, feels right. I think for most folks who are kind of engaged in this work, yeah, the, the really ultimately the right conclusion is we have to make less. Hey, now it's time to talk about the stories that are pressing our buttons. This is our chance to share novel stories and ideas that are grabbing our attention. Shilla, what is pressing your buttons these days? Okay, this is going to sound extremely 
trivial compared to everything we talked about. I'm very self-interested. But um, honestly, I buy a lot of vintage costume jewelry. And I like they're they're super bold and fun and colorful and usually cost effective. And um, but you know, a lot of times mm. they're made with mixed metals or they're plated, and so they definitely get wear and tear and they definitely fall apart. And um, I recently brought, you know, uh, uh, my, a bag full of of costume jewelry I needed to repair to some jewelry shops. Now, first of all, I live in the burbs. Um, so, um, you know, don't have as much access as I used to in the heart of New York city, but it, you know, it took them to kind of local jewelry shops around here and they looked at me like I was insane. I feel like I, I felt a little Oh, judged, cause it I'm wasn't Cartier? <laughs> <laughs> you're right. <laughs> and you're like, they, you want to repair this? It's going to be, you know, cost more than the actual item itself. And so anyway, that's my personal hot button issue. How to easily, repeatedly, cost-effectively fix without getting injury. judged. In the it's birds. like your refrigerator. The same thing happens when your refrigerator breaks now. It's like, buy yeah. a new one! It's right. Like, you know, it's like, <laughs> well, that's yes, exactly what we're exactly. trying to avoid. Don't point. they know that? Oh, that's a good one. That's, that's a real one. Rachel, what's pressing your hot buttons? I mean, I just feel like I'm having a party of one over here over the amount of money that was committed. <laughs> the Global Fashion Summit. The Global Fashion Summit, like, finally... Oh. I mean, so here, let me give you a little rundown about how the fashion industry has worked up until like a couple days ago. Um, We have a lot of summits and a lot of promises are made. A lot of parties are had. A lot of consortiums are put together, but there's no money. There's no money. There's not Uh, enough money committed. Like there's just not the dollars and cents Available yeah. and the fashion industry to its benefit mm-hmm. and to its detriment is like really great at making splashy announcements and like mm-hmm. like putting out the news that like mm-hmm. sounds and the, sounds really great and then you scratch the surface and you're like okay this is like not like <laughs> okay um, but I mean and so we've all been sort of waiting around for real financial commitments to be made to like important issues so number one Boris Johnson. <laughs> God bless him. Uh, He is my hot button. A mixed bag if ever there was one. Isn't he for everybody? (laughs) He committed 80 million pounds to circularity. Dang. Yeah. That's more than Sheehan committed to recycling. Yeah, it made Sheehan. Yeah. (laughs) And um, Sheehan committed 15 million and Apparel Impact Institute announced a $250 million decarbonization fund. Like real dollars. Not just like, Mm -hmm. we're going to get together. Mm -hmm. So this is pressing your buttons. Also in a bad way too because it brings back memories of just like so many years where we were all like, we want to get more done but we just don't have the don't funding. Have we don't have the funding. Right, right. And that's changing. Okay, well, that says that, like, something critical has mm-hmm. moved this year. Like, a needle yeah. has been jogged. Right. Mm-hmm. And, yes, it's an ice-cold ice button cold. for and, and a hot button with <laughs> Boris involved. <laughs> <laughs> we have to talk more about that, but uh, definitely another time and possibly not recording. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I have one hot button, and I'm embarrassed about it, but, you know, it was really fun to get the announcement out this week that we're doing hot buttons. We have this podcast. A lot of people wrote wrote to me and said congratulations and whatnot, and one person who I've known for years but haven't talked to for years wrote, and she's since moved to Key West, and she's living a plastic-free life, and I was just like... 
How? Mm. I don't, I just want to know. I Mm -hmm. I asked her how and like, yeah, seriously. But that, I just Mm. feel like it's like that woman that wrote the book about um, going a year without consuming anything that was made in China Mm -hmm. and how hard that was. She couldn't even get sneakers for her kids. I just don't. So I've been obsessing all week with how I could do something that radical. And I just don't know if it's even possible. Well, can we shadow yeah. her for a week or something? I, I just I just want to understand. Me too. I think she <laughs> needs to write a book. I have to get in touch with her again because that I just I just want to be a voyeur. Yeah. I'd like a I'd like a, a camera <laughs> and just to how see do you buy blueberries? Rituals. I mean, you know, yeah. Like, well, farmers mm. market. My farmers markets they give yeah. them to us in pl- because these plastic clamshells and put them in your pockets. <laughs> I've, been, I've been trying to give the clamshell back. I'm like, will you reuse this? Do you promise me? I've anyway, tried to do exercises in abstaining uh, around certain things. I, I think I don't know if I did fully like plastics free, but I ended up. I sort of here was my my upshot. I ended up feeling like I was like obsessing, like you're on a crash diet, and um, it was so. Hmm difficult. Mm. The only thing I can think about is shame and guilt. And like, it, I I felt, I guess we're we're gals here. It felt like a little eating disordery to me. Like it started becoming infringing Mm. on my mental health. So Uh uh, I'm actually, we could talk about that in a different episode, but I have the whole philosophy around that. If you're an environmental professional, uh, I think there's, you have to give yourself a little grace. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yes. We all have to have grace. Yes, indeed. Oh, this was a lot of fun. It's the end of our first show. Sheila, thank you so much. This is awesome. Guys, I feel like we should do this every week. I don't know about you. <laughs> okay. I'll be here I'm every in. week. For you guys out there, please support us by following us on Twitter. Send a link to friends or colleagues and go to Apple or Spotify and give us a review. If you want to email us with story ideas, we want them. Send a note to hotbuttons at postscriptaudio.com, spelled just like it sounds. Hot Hot Buttons is hosted by me, Christina Binkley, Sheila Kim Parker, and Rachel Kibbe. The show is produced by Postscript Media. Our senior editor is Anne Bailey. Our engineers are Greg Villefranc and Sean Marquand. Cecily Meza-Martinez is our managing producer. Stephen Lacey, Scott Clavenna, and Rachel Kibbe are executive producers. Postscript Media makes podcasts at the intersection of climate with culture, politics, business, and tech. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch up with you next week. So um, that is unfortunate. Um, I, I, w- I was really in support of the bill. It's a Christina supply chain. expressing her discontent. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Rudely. Just wanted to translate for our <laughs> listeners <laughs> what that sound was. And by the way, the same is for the Fashion Workers Act and another bill. Oh. Do, do we have a fart horn? <laughs> okay. Is that- I got to make a list. Darning needles, fart horn. This- okay. <laughs> I also want a blow horn for like, meh. So we really should be kind of a morning show that you listen to during traffic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Howard Stern, right. you got Sound nothing effects. on us. Okay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, he has no idea.